Hey, Technically Human listeners, I'm very excited to introduce the first episode in a special series running throughout the year, 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. The series features 22 of the most important thinkers at the intersection of tech, ethics, and human values from around the world. Over the series of these 22 interviews, we hope to bring you a panoramic picture of how technology is changing what it means to be human and how essential features of human society like art, culture, philosophy, politics, and justice are entangled with tech culture and production. Our first episode in the series, titled The Nature of the Good, What is Ethical and Humanistic Technology Anyway?, features Dr. Herman Tavani. Herman Tavani is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Riviera University. He has held appointments at Boston College, Temple University, Dartmouth College, and at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is the author of the landmark textbook, Ethics and Technology. He has also written, edited, or co-edited five other books, including Reading in Cyberethics, Intellectual Property Rights in a Networked World, Ethics, Computing, and Genomics, The Handbook on Information and Computer Ethics, and Elements of Reasoning, a Short Introduction. Professor Stefani has been honored with a wide range of professional and academic awards, including the 2019 Weizenbaum Award, where he was recognized as having significantly contributed to the field of information and computer ethics through his research, service, and vision over a 25-year period. Hi, Herman. Hello, how are you? I'm well, and I'm actually so excited for this conversation. I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to dialogue with you and to have this dialogue serve as the very first episode of a series of this podcast that we are calling 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. To give you a sense of the scope and the ambition of the series, we are interviewing 22 very prominent humanities scholars across fields and disciplines in the humanities, and we're featuring their work. And our ambitious goal is, through these conversations, to really flesh out and to introduce the public to all of the different nuances, dimensions, the import, and the consequential ways of thinking about the intersection of ethics and technology. And with the series, we're we're really aiming to translate fundamental scholarship at the intersection of ethics and tech to a broader public and to make those folks working across disciplines at different institutions across the world visible to one another so that we can mobilize what I think is a really important discourse about what ethical technology is and what the role of the humanities might be in creating both a way of thinking about technology and technological culture that can better represent and reproduce human values and, I think, the centrality of the humanities in not just thinking about technological culture, but actually creating it. So you are the perfect guest to kick off the series since you're the author of a textbook titled, conveniently, Ethics and Technology. I want to ask you to help us to lay down some of the grounds and establish some of the radical premises of the series. First of all, what is ethics? How do you define that term? Ethics. Excellent question. And let me come at it in a couple of different ways. I think there's a lot of confusion about what ethics is, what it means. There are certainly uh, different uh, avenues of approaching it. As a philosopher, I define ethics as the philosophical study of morality. And of course, that begs two questions what is morality and what is the philosophical study? But I I will just uh, say that morality is a system of rules and principles uh, that we try to uh, interpret 
and develop theories for in terms of correct behavior. So I'm talking about philosophical ethics as distinct from something called, say, religious ethics or legal ethics, which are different. They're more descriptive in nature. With religion, there are more divine command, kind of absolute rules with legal ethics as an authority to back them up. But philosophical ethics uh, is an analysis of a moral system. So philosophical ethics coherently is attempting to give us a sense of how we ought to be in the world, how we think, how we should be. Is it action-based? Is it consequential? Is it intentions? Do intentions matter? I would tend to say philosophical ethics is what I'm going to call normative in nature. And by normative, I'm going to contrast it with something called descriptive. So, for example, if I were a behavioral scientist, I might go out and study the mores, the behaviors of a certain culture, a certain tribe, and report that back and talk about how they approach reproductive activities or economic activities, etc. As in the case of religion and law as well, engage in something called a normative analysis. And that is a question about what one ought to do, not what, what is the case, but how things ought to be. So in that sense, yes, trying to come up with adequate rules and theories in a comprehensive, coherent, exhaustive way, if possible, to try and see how those different pieces cohere in a society that can then uh, give them a kind of a standard for judging what is appropriately morally correct behavior and what is not. This is interesting to me because I think about rules a lot when it comes to ethics, just to give you some background about how I'm thinking about that. I get some critique about my decision to talk about uh, the ethics of technology, because some folks say that we shouldn't be talking about an ethics of technology. We should be talking about the policy around technology, that is to say regulation. And one of the things that I think about when I think about ethics is that ethics is the space where there is no already predefined rule. This is a classical formulation by somebody like uh, Derrida, who is taking this formulation from somebody like uh, Immanuel Kant, this idea that where there's a rule, there is not the space of ethics. So for example, if I stop at a red light, I am not making an ethical decision to stop at a red light. I'm following a rule. That's not an ethical decision. But if I have to ask what ought I to do, or what should I do, then I'm in the space of making an ethical decision. So this puts me to the point where I would fundamentally posit that ethics lies in an arena where there aren't any rules. And this is a problem, I think, because some folks say that ethics is the wrong place to go when we're talking about what we should do about tech. So if ethics is not about policy and regulation, what exactly then does ethics allow us to do? How does ethics allow us to push the envelope forward? Peter. Original uh, point about uh, the ethics of technology or technology of ethics. I think somewhere in your statement, you made a very interesting point about ethics at the intersection of technology. And that to me is a very good distinction. And the reason I'm going to say this is because both ethics and technology are systems. I'll get to that later on about what I mean by, by a system for technology. But then to speak to your point about ethics not having rules, that's not, I'm not an expert on Derrida, so I'll, I'll just plead ignorance on that. But my understanding of ethics in terms of the moral rules, of the moral system, and I'm going to follow uh, philosopher Bernard Gert, 
who wrote a wonderful book called Common Morality. And what Gert posits is that morality is a system of rules, and the rules are informal, public, rational, and they're informal in, in the sense that unlike the legal rules which are codified, they're implicit, but they're also public. We know what the rules are. So, for example, if you think about just ordinary activities, if you play a game of cards with a friend, or if you play a game of pickup basketball with someone, there won't be formal authoritative referees to, to judge your behavior. But if you cheat in the card game, if you uh, foul people in the, in the basketball game, people may not want to play with you. They know what the rules are, but we can't codify every rule in society. It would become too cumbersome. So what the law does is take certain rules, which can be codified, can be enforced, which need to be. That's one difference between legal sanctions and, say, moral rules. So I think there are rules at play. So I just quibble a little bit, maybe with that interpretation, there are no rules. There are different rules. They're not explicit. They're not formal. But nonetheless, they're public in the sense that we all know what they are. They're informal because they're not adjudicated by a legal authority. But they're nonetheless rules. And the rules guide our actions. Some are, some are directive. And they also help us to establish policies. Because a policy itself can be informal. It could be a legal uh, rule, or it could be an informal rule, like etiquette. Do the old rules and concepts of ethics apply to technological production? If there are these kinds of rules, or if laws are codified ethics, do the old rules, do the old laws, do the old ethics apply to technological production, especially for digital technologies? Or does our tech change, shift, or require us to ask new ethical questions or to create new ethical rules? That by the way, it was, it was a key question in computer ethics a couple of decades ago. There were two competing schools of thought on this. One is there's nothing new under the sun. Ethics is ethics is ethics. Stealing is stealing is stealing, and so on and so forth. We just have uh, either it was it new wine and old bottles or old wine and new bottles or whatever the case may be. Another school of thought was, well, no, the issue is right now they're rising. You haven't seen before. And we don't have sufficiently broad theories to really address these specific issues. We need to develop a brand new ethical theory, a global theory, because these problems now are international. And my own view is the truth lies somewhere in between, that the issues themselves don't require a new theory per se, or a brand new framework, but a new way of looking at it. And I think Someone like philosopher James Moore at Dartmouth College came up with a very nice way of looking at this. He said, if you think about some of the problems, ethical issues around computers, there's a lot of confusion about them because we don't have policies in place. So we need a policy to determine what should be done in this case. But sometimes we try to create a policy or revise a policy. We find there's all these conceptual confusions or muddles, as he calls them. And these conceptual models are often due to the, the nature of computing technology, which is what he calls logically malleable. So just take the example of software, for example. We don't always know in advance. We can't anticipate what, uh, for example, some of the issues might be. Therefore, we have to 
attend to these as they arise. And a classic case would be something like computer crime early, early on. And people would say, oh, well, what, what about this? Is it a brand new ethical theory? And what Moore would say is, well, it depends. What is the nature of software? So everybody knew, for example, that stealing someone's desktop or laptop computer was wrong. But what about copying someone's chess game or someone's music or something like that? Was that also criminal? Was that also unethical? And although now you might look back and say, well, that's kind of a stupid question. It really wasn't because unlike traditional crime, for example, where in theft, where a person has X, but now the thief has X and the other person doesn't, both people can now have the software. So it wasn't that we needed new theories. It was we needed a new framework, a new way of approaching this. So how did we get to the place where we needed an ethics of technology? Are there particular moments or particular cases that got us to the current state of concern about the ethics of technology such that we needed an entire new framework to accommodate it? So it's hard to pick any one instance, any one factor, any one technology that caused that. I would say that um, from my own point of view, people have been thinking about ethics and technology prior to computers anyway. There was a wonderful book that came out in 1984. The research had been done way before, back in the 40s, uh, by Hans Jonas, who was a philosopher at the New School of Social Research in the US, and was also a German refugee during the Nazi era. And he wrote a book called The, uh, The Imperative of Responsibility in a Technological Age. And what he argued is that we are in a place now This is coming off nuclear energy, atomic bombs at the end of World War II, where the stakes had changed considerably. So, for example, prior to the advent of nuclear technology, we were content to deal with something he called neighbor ethics, humans to humans. But now, with the danger to the human race, to the human condition, to the future, we have to expand the moral sphere of consideration. It's no longer just about humans. But it's about abstract objects like future generations of humans that don't exist. Or, for example, the environment. I mean, the nuclear devastation that could occur uh, with atomic energy. So, surprisingly, his work did not catch on in the US, well, until more recently. But it did have an impact in environmental ethics because some people said, well, yes, we have an obligation now to our ecosystem, to our environment, if it's going to sustain us. So we need to develop a new sense of ethics, an expanded sense of responsibility that goes beyond neighbor ethics or just humans to humans. So that's one example of of someone who'd been thinking about a need for a new ethics. What led you to want to write a book or the textbook on technological ethics? Well, before I became a full-time professor, I did work for a while in the computer industry as a software writer. And I also had a curiosity about computers and philosophy, not necessarily with ethics at the beginning, but more from a a humanistic perspective, the relationship between computers and human knowledge, computers and minds, computers and art. So there are different categories where I saw some connections that sort of question, push the envelope of what it means to be human. How is this affecting who we are as human beings? Are we different now? because of this. And then 
at one point, my department chair thought I should develop a course in computer ethics. So I got a hold of a text, and I was fascinated by what I had read. But then I recalled I also saw firsthand some of these issues developing in the workplace. Some of the engineers' attitudes toward, for example, software programs that they would share willingly with each other without a regard for proprietary or intellectual property issues, or some of the privacy issues that didn't even appear to be privacy issues at the time. As I developed an interest in this, I obviously searched the literature to find a good textbook. There weren't too many textbooks at the time, and there was one good textbook, I think, in philosophy, but it came out of the what I would call the occupational ethics or professional ethics side of the applied ethics world. And it seemed to work well in the computer profession, but not so much for everyday people like us who would soon be using computers. So with that, I thought, well, if I could develop a text, how would I do it? I had already developed a book of readings with with a co-editor, and it gave me some ideas about how uh, how to structure that book. And so I had to use so many textbooks to cover the topics I wanted to do that I set out to design one that I could do with cover in one fell swoop those issues. Fast forward to now, and we are in the beginning, or maybe by now the middle, of what has been termed a tech clash or a backlash against technological products and culture, which has led to some of the most um, massively disastrous consequences, the technologies, I mean, not the tech clash, the endangerment, for example, of our democracy and the possibility of it being overrun by algocracy, algorithmic bias, potentially a genocide in Myanmar. New questions, I think, that alarm us about the value of free speech vis-a-vis other values, such as causing harm. How have you seen this tech class shift the way that we talk about tech and ethics? Has there been a shift for you as a result of the tech clash? Has there been a shift in the way that academics are talking about it that has led to this tech clash? What does that shift signify for you if you're seeing what I at least see, which is the shift? I must say, I'm not familiar with the term tech clash per se, but I certainly understand everything it embodies. And uh, I would just pick on one topic if I could from the list you gave me, and that's democracy. What has been dramatic in the past 20 plus years, I would say, is that many of us so-called netizens, N-E-T-I-Z-E-Ns in the very beginning, were all excited about this new computer architecture, this very democratizing kind of technology that would enhance democracy because of its openness, that it would uh, make it harder for nations totalitarian that wanted to suppress for authoritarian nations. And people were excited about that. We thought, this is, this is really a good thing. I think that sort of culminated for me. There's something happened about 10 years ago. It's called the Arab Spring. I don't know if you remember this or not. But there was the overthrow of Mahasni Mubarak in Egypt. And it had been done through social media. Even though they turned off the net and they shut down electricity, people had already mobilized with their cell phones prior to that, had planned their meetings and were able to overthrow uh, an authoritarian government. So it seemed like, wow, this is really going to enhance democracy. But then as we move forward, and social media took a more prominent hold, moving from more like sharing pictures of your children or something to getting more and more political, what I began to see during the 
I'm sorry, to the 2016 elections frightened me with the way social media can really wreak havoc with and even potentially undermine democracy. And now my fear is that this will just become increasingly exacerbated. But right now, I think the technology in general, but social media in particular, poses an extraordinary threat to democracy. I'm not sure that democracy will survive it. And I'm really sad to say that even in totalitarian countries, like in the People's Republic of China, where I thought things could change, the government itself has also increased its own surveillance by, by censoring Google, etc. So I'm really worried about democracy as we go forward. And I wish there were some technology-enhancing applications that could come out to counter this. What those would be like, I'm not sure, but I'd be very delighted to see something done to counter the current threat. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting because the arc that you just traced out between the enchantment of technological products, Twitter, for example, which in many ways was able to leverage a kind of democratic platform in order to pursue a kind of democratic measure in the Arab Spring, turns very quickly into disenchantment when it comes to, for example, uh, Twitter or Facebook being used by a kind of authoritarian figure in what is ostensibly a democracy to overthrow that democracy or at least pose serious challenges to it. And I'm interested in this narrative of enchantment, disenchantment, because it plays itself out over and over and over again. I don't like to say things like since the beginning of time, but in this case, you know, since the beginning of recorded time, we have the Tower of Babel, enchantment with this technology that helps us build and then disenchantment. And you have Prometheus, enchantment with fire and then disenchantment. And Icarus, enchantment with this new technology that allows us to fly closer to the sun and then disenchantment. And of course, Frankenstein, if we want to look to more modern times, enchantment with the technologies and certainly the technologies of the day were very enchanted by um, uh, things like uh, bioanimation and electricity and the possibility of human creation and replication of the human through technological means. And then, of course, disenchantment as uh, Frankenstein's creation becomes Frankenstein's monster. So we have uh, the celebration of Facebook and then we have Facebook's monster, right, <laughs> which is the current state of affairs. So why don't we ever learn from this narrative that repeats itself over and over and over again? Or can we learn from it? Is the tech lash us learning from these narratives of the past? Is there a possibility out of this? Or is this doomed to repeat itself over and over and over again as our technological products emerge to enchant and then disappear? enchant us. I, I like the idea of the cyclical aspect of these things appearing, reappearing, the utopia, dystopia, enchantment, disenchantment. But one thing that worries me now is a concern that went back to, I think, Jeremy Bentham, 18th century philosopher, was the first to hit on this idea of something called a panopticon. And I think people like Foucault and people have picked up on this recently as well. And uh, for people who may not understand what that is like, the um, in the 18th century, of course, Bentham was a social reformer. He was looking at the prison system. And one of the ideas he had was for a prison designed in such a way where there was only one prison guard sitting at a desk. And there were a series of prison cells in a circle, all made of glass. And the prisoners themselves could not see out of the cells, but the prison guard could see in at any given time. And the prison guard desk would rotate. So he would just 
he would see who at any given point certain prisoners, etc. And this idea of a panopticon, uh, well, I mean, the, I guess just jumping, stepping back a minute would be that if a prisoner wasn't sure that he or she could be observed at any given point, they always suspected they, they could be, so they were going to act in a way. Their, their behavior is going to be controlled now in a way that otherwise might not be. I think we are moving toward that, if we're not already in that, with our various smart technologies. If we live in smart homes, if we live in smart apartments and go into smart buildings, there are intelligent devices embedded in walls and ceilings and floors that are recording information about us constantly, or that can be doing it. And I think the, uh, the concern might be, well, if this can be recorded at any given moment, maybe I should presume that it is being recorded. That's going to affect how I behave, not just in terms of social control from the government, that's one concern, but even from economic interests. So a landlord who owns my apartment is privy to my conversations that are recorded. Years ago, when I was a kid, there was a show on TV called This Is Your Life, and it would about to recount these events in your life. Well, now all of us could have our own episodes of This Is Our Life if we're born into an era when we live in smart buildings that are recording, sensing us of what we're doing all the time, we become either so oblivious to it that we don't care, or we become so concerned that we're not really acting freely anymore. We're, we're acting in terms of a technology that we fear. And I guess it's you know, also a little bit of the Orwellian Big Brother effect also uh, plays in with that. Yeah, I think about it even on smaller scales. Like, for example, you know, I stopped posting my activities on social media because I started to see myself selecting activities and choosing activities that would allow me to portray a certain vision or version of my life. And I got very interested in the ways in which even in these less severe ways than, you know, surveillance for prisons or things like that my behavior was not only being recorded, but actually modified by the technologies that were recording it. And I thought about the way that that was, I mean, and now there's a lot of evidence for this, impacting my well-being, but also the ways in which that could be leveraged by people who can benefit from moving my behavior one notch to the right or one notch to the left, not in uh, severe ways, but more insidiously in the smaller ways that can change the way that I act or the decisions that I make to their benefit. And more severely, I think, really change what I think of as a self and what I think of as the autonomy of the I. Those are things that keep me up at night, I think, as much as the questions about democracy. So I guess my question is, you know, we've talked about democracy, we've talked about surveillance. What are some of the other major questions or discussion stoppers that come up for you when talking about technological ethics broadly? Are they these larger, severe global scale impacts? Are they the smaller scale impacts? Are there things that are particularly trenchant to you in thinking about uh, ethics and technology or that when you talk about them, uh, stop the discussion where they are, where it stands? So the way I uh, talk about discussion stoppers in my textbook, I think of um, certain kinds of catchphrases, cliches that sort of break down good ethical dialogue. You want to get into a serious discussion and debate something, and someone will say, oh, well, isn't it all what you think anyway? Oh, well, isn't it all just personal? Oh, well, isn't it all just relative? And 
The sad thing is it deflates the conversation. My concern is people give in too easily to that kind of thinking. And you could refute each one of these because um, ethics is not simply personal. Yes, there are choices involved, but it's a public phenomenon. It's not like I prefer vanilla ice cream, you prefer chocolate. That's a different kind of a thing. I can't say I prefer killing and you don't. It's not just subjective. It's public. It's not just personal. And I think sometimes people rightly get discouraged because, well, people can't reach agreements about ethical issues. That's true. But we do reach agreement on many very basic core principles. I mean, pretty much everyone agrees that stealing is wrong. They agree that willful murder is wrong. Or they might disagree on whether euthanasia is murder or whether abortion is murder or something like that. So there's a disagreement oftentimes around the facts of the matter more than the ethical principles. So people, I don't know who live in the Asian countries, might argue, yes, yeah, stealing is wrong, but I don't necessarily agree that copying software is a form of stealing. So the issue then comes down to trying to clarify, separate out discussions of fact, empirical data from ethical principles. My belief is, down deep inside, we all hold the same core moral convictions. If you can get down to that level of, of core uh, or, or deep principles, and instead we remain on the surface oftentimes getting bogged down in factual information that be, can become politicized, distorted, become misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of groundwork that has to be done to, to get into good ethical dialogue. And I think it would be helpful if somehow that, were, that notion were made more broadly available to people, that the disagreements they have might not always be simply or ultimately ethical in, at bottom. There are also some factual matters that need to be cleared up before we can resolve the ethical debate. I want to talk about a specific dimension of that ethical debate, and that is uh, cyber ethics. What is cyber ethics, and how do the perspectives of computer scientists, philosophers, and social scientists work symbiotically or parallel to or in tension with one another in the framework of cyber ethics? I've used the term cyber ethics in search for a generic term because I thought computer ethics was too narrow. I thought internet ethics was still a little too narrow. And I thought that cyber ethics, I, I, today, by the way, I, I might use the term digital ethics as being coterminous with that, but I'll stay with cyber for the moment. I thought where I was using, as I said earlier, ethics more broadly as the philosophical study of morality, I wanted to use cyber ethics in a little more expanded way. I wanted to think of cyber ethics as a way of looking at the moral legal and social issues involving cyber technology. And cyber technology ran the gamut of devices from standalone computers like these huge mainframes and servers to desktop computers, to laptops, to smartphones, to virtually any kind of device down to the nano level, if you want. So that was a, a, a scheme that I thought sort of capture more broadly the kinds of issues. So as far as the different disciplines working together, I was struck by a model that um, Philip Bray, a philosopher at the University of Twente in the Netherlands came up with called disclosive computer ethics. 
being able to disclose issues that are some embedded in the technology. And he thought that computer scientists, philosophers, and social scientists could work together in ways that could help flesh out some of the problems, even at the design stage. Because computer scientists, they have the expertise, they have the knowledge, they write the code. Sometimes they might not be as sensitive to human needs, ergonomic needs, or other needs that social scientists can bring to it. And in terms of recognizing potential ethical issues, philosophers can then test some of these against ethical theories. And I think, for example, of, a, of one technology that comes to mind, which I think could have benefited from this. So I think of cookies technology, which today is sort of commonplace. My hunch is when the software engineers set out to design this technology, they were told by their employers, I want you to write an application for me, a program that will enable me to determine how much traffic I have on my website, how many visitors I have when they come, when they leave, how often they return, et cetera. So my hunch is that when the people were designing this code, they had no thought that, gee, this could be invading one's privacy. This could be threatening privacy in some ways, because that wasn't the, wasn't the intention, I suspect, at all. But had they been working in tandem with some behavioral scientists and philosophers, that might have been picked up, that there were certain embedded values in that technology, normative values that needed to be disclosed and then addressed by these different disciplines at the development and design stage. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about privacy, which is something that in the Handbook of Information and Computer Ethics, you go into great detail about. I want to ask you to define another term, which is the one that we've been talking about, privacy. What is privacy? Is privacy an ethical issue? And if so, do the old ethics that governed questions of privacy still rule in the digital age? Are there new questions or ethical considerations that you should think about. I know you say that maybe the facts are different. We disagree about the facts. But what about the ethics themselves? How many hours do we have? How many hours do we have? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to do this as succinctly as possible. But um, As much as you can tell me on one foot. <laughs> yeah. So seriously, it's an important issue. I'll try to be as succinct as possible, but try to cover some of the uh, various challenges to understanding it. So Privacy has been described as an elusive concept, as a slippery concept, as a very confusing concept. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart once said, in reference to pornography, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And some people said, well, privacy, I can't define it, but I know it when I lose it. Okay. So it's something that's difficult, but I Philosophers come up with different kinds of definitions. And for example, some believe it's what they call a univocal concept that can be defined cleanly. Others see it as a cluster concept because it's so connected with concepts like security, secrecy, autonomy, liberty, anonymity, and so on and so forth. I'll come up with it. I'll try to get more precise with definition a little bit later. But just to give a rough history of where we are at this point, some people seem surprised to learn that there's no explicit mention of privacy in the U.S. Constitution. And in fact, the first mention of a right to privacy wasn't until 1890 in a, in a, in a seminal paper by uh, Warren and Brandeis called the Harvard Law Review in 1890 called the right to privacy. And it's been challenged in the courts. Some people say, well, 
okay, there's no mention of privacy, but if you go into the Fourth Amendment, the right to search and seizure, against have your papers uh, looked at without permission, that forms a bedrock for privacy. And people have tried to enact different kinds of laws based on that. But people have also been all over the place on privacy. What does it refer to? Is it about information? Is it about decisions? Is it about interference? Is it about being alone? And there have been all these different views of privacy. In my mind, no single definition of privacy. And of course, my focus has been mainly on something called informational privacy. But if you look at our legal system, some of the privacy statutes that exist or some of the court decisions involving privacy have also been affected by the uh, what's called decisional privacy. So go back to 1965 in the Griswold versus Connecticut case, where people were trying to get information about contraception. I mean, it sounds silly today, right? But uh, birth control information. And it was, it was precluded until finally a court ruled. Then, of course, in Roe v. Wade, the decision was, you know, in part based on a woman's right to privacy. So privacy has become an important, but also a controversial uh, concept. And as I've mentioned before, we can look at privacy in many different kinds of categories. You can think of it as um, accessibility, uh, bodily integrity kinds of things. You can think of it as decisional. You can think of it as informational. And another useful distinction in trying to get at what privacy is, is to ask the question, are we talking about privacy as a right or privacy simply as an interest? I think the right to privacy is far more convoluted. And uh, for example, some courts don't even want to listen to the word privacy. They'll, they'll talk about liberty, but they don't want to talk about privacy. And one way the Europeans have gotten around this is they use the term data protection in the EU as, as a right. But the other question is interest. And I think we can certainly say that privacy is an interest that we all have in protecting information about ourselves and protecting our integrity and so on and so forth. So that's uh, a few different ways of looking at privacy. but. A number of recent philosophical theories, you can look at something called accessibility privacy, which talks about being free from inter, uh, not interference, but free from invasion into one's personal space, whether it's by the government or by other people. Decisional privacy, being free to be able to make decisions about interference. Informational privacy, ability to have some control over how information about you is collected and exchanged. So that's kind of the short answer to the 20-year question, I guess, about <laughs> what is privacy. Well, let me dig in a little bit deeper into informational privacy and ask you to differentiate quantitative difference from qualitative differences. Why should we be bothered to think consciously about these differences in our daily lives? So if you think of the quantitative differences, on the one hand, I mean, information technology has increased or exacerbated concerns existed before. So in terms of, say, the amount of information that can be collected, the speed at which it can be transferred, the duration of time at which it could be kept. So those issues had already been around. Computers, again, exacerbate that. But there are other categories uh, that are more qualitative. So transactional information. At one time, you could make a purchase and there would be no record. But in the computer world example, there's always going to be a record of that transaction. We now we have something called locational privacy. So if you have a smart device, or if you wear a Fitbit, or if you have some piece of smart clothing, your location can be tracked at any time, at any point. 
And that's a qualitative difference, I think, in terms of privacy concerns. Also, another qualitative difference would be that in the past, you might have seen a device recording you, like a CCTV camera. But with embedded technologies, they're not something out there, some object, something tangible or visible that could be embedded in something. So we're not aware of them. And the intelligent user interfaces in some of these smart technologies, which are micro level, at least now, maybe someday will be nano level, they can actually sense people. They can sense feelings. In the, in the future, they may be able, able to sense thoughts. These are qualitatively different kinds of privacy concerns, I think, that um, we need to be aware of and uh, decide how we want to address them, what kinds of policies we need. There's a larger ethical question I have that certainly deals with questions of privacy, but also extends to larger and broader questions like data collection, data processing, biases in both of those processes, um, algorithms that encode unethical principles and biases into the production of futures. And I'm interested in the idea that, you know, a lot of these outcomes that are unintended consequences, as some folks call them, of these technologies are the productions of not intention, but the problem of many hands. In other words, the idea that there's many people working on these products, that there are many um, ideals and many kind of outcomes and many goals that are trying to be accomplished through this larger production um, system. And in the context of many hands, how do we assign responsibility or ethical accountability or change what is essentially a structural and bureaucratic problem? Now, I realize that there's a lot of really sophisticated theorists and some very good philosophers and a very strong tradition of thinkers who have diagnosed the problem of bureaucratic driven evil and the challenges of punishing such evil in a society where legal processes and moral philosophies are really set up to center on identifying individual wrongdoers. One of those philosophers, of course, is the great Hannah Arendt, whose work uh, looked back to the a particular historical moment, which is the post-World War II moment that you cited earlier as a galvanizing point for thinking about an ethics of technology for the 20th and 21st century. Is a rent relevant here? Are there better ways or philosophies better equipped to help us think about this problem or solve it, at least point us toward better solutions? So you mentioned Hannah Arendt, a philosopher for whom I have the most utmost admiration and respect. And unfortunately, I am not an Arendt scholar. I had the good fortune to teach with a colleague who was a student of hers at the New School of Social Research. And Hannah Arendt was also a colleague of Hans Jonas, a philosopher I mentioned earlier, who wrote the book on the imperative of responsibility in technological age. So to the problem of many hands, it certainly is not unique to computing technology. It's been around for a long time. But where I think it really matters in the computer world and where it becomes particularly acute in software development. Because unlike the production of many hardware items, for example, where you still have teams, with software, you could have hundreds, thousands of software developers working on a product, an application for an operating system, for example. And each of them is testing their own modules. So there could be a deficiency in one line of code in one module that could cause a terrible injury. They're thinking, for example, of the Therac 25 machine in Canada many years ago. It was one line of code 
uh, that caused a bug in the software that caused people to be extremely over-radiated. And so who is at fault here? And people say, well, is it the software developer? Is it the management team, the corporation, the hospital? And I think the answer is, well, they are <laughs> in some sense. I mean, responsibility is not mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean that because A can be held responsible, B can't, or vice versa. Uh, so it becomes diffuse. And I guess if they're not responsible, they can be held accountable. I mean, we talk about legal liability, moral responsibility, and accountability. So I think that the problem of many hands poses a particular challenge to software development just by the very nature of the beast, the way it is done, the way it's carried out. I think improvements have been made in the area, but there's still a risk. There's still, I mean, that's why they have, for example, updates, bug fixes, et cetera, because after a product is released, you're going to find a flaw. It's almost impossible, I think, to write an entirely clean operating system with no bugs. And who is responsible for that? Is it that developer who wrote the bad line of code? Is it the team that person was on? Is it was the company that released the software before adequate testing? Is it the manufacturer? Is it the, the organization that used it? I think that's still an open question and one that you need, they need to pay particular attention to in the uh, technology ethics sphere. I mean, your, your example is interesting to me because I would call a bug in the software what in the legal category we might maybe call negligence, but there's another category that's separate from negligence, which is uh, intentional wrongdoing. And, you know, as much as I see some negligence happening in the context of the tech industry, I also see a lot of what I would consider to be wrongdoing. Now, to give a kind of case example here, I think that, for example, Mark Zuckerberg an obvious example, he might not bear responsibility for decisions that his engineering team or that his marketing team made. Those are intentional decisions. Those are not bugs. Those were the code. Those are not bugs in the code. They were the code. And he might not bear uh, responsibility for the smaller decisions made by his management team. But at the end of the day, he benefited enormously from those decisions in terms of exceptional revenue, for example, gleaned from that decision. And it's his product. So to me, some principle of justice, which I think of as an ethical principle, tugs at me to, I think, in reality, perhaps even acknowledge that while there's no absolute responsibility, while there are indeed many hands, the idea that uh, there might be intentional wrongdoing and the idea that a figurehead, the person who benefits enormously from the the production team ought to also be held enormously accountable or responsible and that we should not ignore it ethically or legally. Are you more sympathetic to Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, are you less sympathetic to Mark Zuckerberg than I am? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no. I believe that um, Zuckerberg is accountable, among other people, not solely. He should be accountable. He's not being held accountable. He should be. I'm sorry, he should be held accountable. But I think also where I would come in is with legal liability here. If we can't get him for moral culpability, he's at least a contributing player in this or has a role in which not to take action is negligence. So I think there's, there are liability issues here which go beyond the moral realm, which the legal realm can take care of. I mean, we can still question his behavior. But even if people try to defend that by saying, oh, but he didn't intentionally do this, his position is such that, well, 
he's still accountable for whatever is done by his corporation. And people that report to him are responsible to make him aware of those decisions. And he must have signed off on the decisions that were, in this case, uh, putting profit before safety or putting profit before other values. And maybe this this idea of legal liability brings us back to where we started here with the relationship or perhaps the gap between ethics and law or ethics and regulation. Because one of the questions that I frequently get asked by critics of the tech industry, or maybe it's a critique of my work, which focuses on ethics and technology, is that uh, we should not be talking about ethics. We should be talking about regulation. And I'll give you an anecdote. A while ago, I was having a conversation with one of my brilliant uh, student researchers who's looking at ethical technology programs and syllabi across university campuses. And one of her findings in her research is that while uh, ethical teaching is standard in, for example, civil engineering programs, there's less of or, or no standard in computer science context for thinking about ethics technology. And we were thinking about this. And as we were talking, we realized that perhaps some of the ethical questions that come up about tech in the context of computer science or digital technologies or social media are really in actuality questions that should be legal questions, questions that we have to put in an ethical context in the frame of computer science that we don't have to put into an ethical context, for example, in civil engineering, is because in civil engineering, we have laws. If you build a road and the road breaks, you're responsible and you have to abide by uh, civil codes and you have to abide by regulations. And those regulations are very tight. They are very high bars and they are uh, bars that if you don't follow them, you're legally held responsible for. So if you're a civil engineer, you might have some ethical questions, but for the most part, the basic questions are already answered through standard codified laws, regulations, permitting that are mandated by the state government or the federal government. But so much of The critical ethical tech context, especially in the digital context, are ethical questions because there are so few laws. And that means that questions that perhaps ought to have clear standards get repositioned as ethical questions. So philosophically, ethics is in the area of inquiry where at least yet there are no predetermined legal rules that you have to follow. There might be normative laws that philosophy has worked out, but there are not yet the kind of legal codes to go to go back to that idea, or maybe you can push back on that. Where's the line between uh, rules and ethics? And I guess my question is, should we be seeking an ethics of technology or is that a misdirect? Should we be instead agitating for a more comprehensive standard law of technology? Well, okay. So a couple of things I think are worth sorting out if I could in the question. So you're comparing the space of civil engineering to computer engineering, software engineering, for example. And yes, I think civil engineering may seem to be a more settled field. So software engineering is more recent, still more uh, developing in in its own way. But both fields have codes of ethics. I think they may be more fixed, more structured. And I, I don't know about civil engineering, can't speak to that. But there are still Moral issues that can arise in that field, even with codes, when civil engineers are designing systems using computer software, for example, that may itself have problems. But then the problem may go to the on the computer side versus the civil engineering side. But I think what would be unfair to say is that uh, computer scientists have no training in ethics at all, because the Association for Computing Machinery and the Institute for Electrical Electronic Engineers 
require their students to take some ethics modules, at least if not ethics courses, in their undergraduate courses. Now, is that sufficient? I don't know. And are codes of ethics themselves sufficient? I seriously doubt they are for reasons I can elaborate in a different space. But I think we had we touched on this earlier. I think many engineers, software engineers that I've spoken to, I used the example of cookies technology before just one instance, would say, look, I'm not doing anything value laden. I'm just doing, I'm just building my software. I'm just doing something very descriptive. I was told to build this application. I'm doing it and may not be attending to the kind of values, moral or normative values built into that. And it's riskier, I think, on the computer side because software is such, um, I don't know, a fluid kind of thing. It's, it's not like, uh, in many cases, in civil uh, engineering. So one thing I would agree with is that I think that computer science could benefit and would stand to benefit from more ongoing and increased ethical training more than just a module. There was some debate in those societies whether a full course was needed or just a module. I know many students do take a course in computer ethics. Is that sufficient? Do they need more training? Is it the nature of computer technology and software in particular such that it requires more extensive ethical training than, say, in fields like civil engineering? I don't know the answer to that. But with regard to regulation versus ethics, again, they're not mutually exclusive. I think you can regulate without even having formal laws. You can have policies that help regulate in an informal way. So I don't know if it's black and white in terms of if I would contrast the civil engineering concerns versus the software engineering. It may be a degree of, uh, maybe in terms of scale, maybe a, uh, we need to pay a little more attention to the challenges in the computer world, especially those brought on by software development. The context for the series is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanistic-driven inquiry in the context of tech culture and production. What value do the humanities as a set of disciplines or humanistic values as a tradition play, or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and a better thinking about what we do when we envision, design, and create technologies? So my bias as a philosopher is uh, I consider myself a humanist. <laughs> and the questions about technology that affect me most is what does it mean for us to be human? How does it affect us not just in terms of how we interact with each other, but how we conceive of ourselves. And I think historically, we've always seen technology as a way for us to compete with or deal with nature. We've developed tools, we've developed technologies in response to that. And so far, it hasn't really altered our human condition. I think we're still pretty much the same kinds of entities we've always been. But I do worry going forward about what that's going to mean. So for example, as we get many more technological breakthroughs and developments in the medical field, and we can prolong life and we can expand intelligence, and what is this going to mean for a sense of what it means to be human in a technological age? Will we still be the same creatures? Will we coexist with other kinds of entities, artificial intelligence entities in the future? What will that have to do with our sense of humanity and where we see ourselves in the world? And if you think of, um, just to mention a couple of theorists who've talked about this, there was a um, 
a wonderful work back in the 1980s by John David Bolter called um, Turing's Man, AI Turing, Turing's Man, Life in the Computer Age. It looks at uh, how humanity has been affected by what he calls a defining technology. And a defining technology is one that causes us to see the world in terms of that technology. There have been many important technologies that aren't defining, but he, he lists three of them. So, for example, if I think historically of, of some of the most important technologies that affect human beings, the first would be, say, agriculture, the second would be steam, and the third would be computers. He looks at it in terms of um, what he calls Plato's man, Descartes' man, Turing's man. Excuse the, the, the gender bias there, but that's, that was, these are his terms. He looks back at the, uh, at, at the Greek era and how they were fascinated by uh, certain technologies. They had important day-to-day -day ones, but what fascinated them was the rotating spindle. And they, saw this, uh, and they saw the Earth as some kind of rotating organic mechanism. That's how they came to how they defined themselves. And then, if you look uh, at, toward the late Middle Ages, there was the the weight driven clock, and the people at that time began to see the universe as a mechanistic, as opposed to organic machine. And we were somehow connected with this. We were the ghost inside the machine. Then, in the 20th century, with the computer, now we see the world in terms of a computer metaphor. Nature is almost mechanized, computerized in terms of the metaphors we use to describe it. And we come to see ourselves through this new defining technology. And I thought he seemed to be really onto something. It's just how we more and more are becoming more computer-like and computers are designed to be more human-like. And what will, this, what will this blending become? Will our human nature change in certain ways? Will we begin to see ourselves and the universe and the world around us in the same way we've always seen ourselves? So that's one concern I have. And I think of what it means for our sense of self. I know Sherry Turkle, a sociologist at MIT, has done a lot of work in that era, in that area. And I've been impressed with her different studies. And I think uh, the impact of the computer on the self and how we see ourselves is going to be... Uh, an interesting challenge for us as we go forward. And I think we need to become more, more cognizant of that as we do go forward. As we close, let's circle back to where we started with the idea that this episode stands as the launch of a special series titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? We seem to be at a crossroads right now with where we are. And we can either throw back our hands and just say, well, look, this is just the way it is. Technology's here, social media's here. I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to enjoy the benefits and deal with whatever comes my way. But I would argue that we can make a choice, that we need to become better informed about the power that we have, the decisions that we can make. We can choose to participate or not participate in certain kinds of, say, social media activities. But we also can also affect policy. And how do we do that? We have to become a better informed electorate. We need to be active. We need to go out and make a difference. Instead of just sitting back and enjoying this technology and marveling at how it's changed our lives and how we can connect with people and all these wonderful inventions we're going to have with 
smart homes and autonomous vehicles. What does it mean? Is, is it the future that we want for ourselves? Do we just want to become cogs in this machine? Do we want to become anesthetized by the technology? Give up our democracy instead of fighting for it? Do we want to let autonomous agents have more and more control over our lives and become so dependent on these technologies that we sort of lose our sense of self, our cognitive skills, et cetera, in the future? I guess in the most general way, I would just say to become to take a stance, to become involved in the ethical issues. We are empowered. We're not just simply uh, cogs in a wheel. We can make a difference, but we have to become active. We have to take a part in our own decisions about what we want to become as persons and also the kind of society we want to live in as human beings. Thank you so much, Irvin. Thank you. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Elise St. John. Thanks to Jake Gardner and to Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for this series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and feel free to contact us with any suggestions, complaints, or ideas. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode.